0: Uh, So this morning we are in the second installment uh, of a series looking at the last week of Jesus's life. Sometimes we call it the Passion Week. Uh, So Tom Avery started us off brilliantly last week with uh, what we call the Triumphal Entry. So the moment when Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey uh, with people shouting, um, Hosanna, King, here he comes. Uh, And now we're coming to the second installment, uh, which we know as the cleansing of the temple. But... Before we go to this episode, we're going to read one very small moment that occurs between these two events that is often overlooked and I think might be very significant. So before we open to our text for today, you can turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verse 11. I don't think this one will even come up on the screen. So if you've got a Bible, it's always good to have a paper Bible in your hands, isn't it? Um, So Mark 11... Verse 11, so this is uh, in the Gospel of Mark, the account of Jesus' life. He's just spoken at the beginning of chapter 11 of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry which Tom spoke about last week. And then we read this funny little verse in verse 11. Now it's a strange moment, just picture where what's just happened. Crowds have gathered around Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. People are shouting, here comes the king, the king is coming to Jerusalem. It's, it's this exciting climactic moment. And then, as he enters Jerusalem, we read Mark chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he left. So this exciting climax, the king is coming, here he comes, everybody's shouting and excited and there's this crowd growing and he comes into Jerusalem and he comes into the temple and he just looks around, just has a good look at everything, maybe sits down, watches. And then, it's getting late, he leaves, walks out of Jerusalem, spends the night in Bethany just outside Jerusalem and then the next day he comes back. It's a bit of a funny moment, isn't it? We're going to come back to it later, but what we now come to is Jesus entering the temple again the next morning, and this is where it gets exciting. So Luke 19 is our text for today, Luke chapter 19, verse 45 to 48, which should be coming up on the screen here, and we read these words. Now, this uh, moment when Jesus does this dramatic act in the temple, we read about in all four of the Gospels. In the Gospel of Luke, it's the most brief account out of all of them. All we read in that first uh, verse we read, verse 45, it says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Began to drive out those who sold. Very brief description. So what we're going to do to get a little bit more detail of what took place is flip over to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, uh, where we get a little bit more detail about what what exactly took place in this moment. So you can turn with me to Mark, chapter 11, beginning in verse 15. And there we go, we have it on the screen. Tule is amazing, isn't she? (laughs) Uh, Okay, so Mark, chapter 11, verse 15, we read these words. It's the same moment says, they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So Jesus comes into the temple, and he creates... uh, can only think of a Hebrew word for it uh, called balagan. I don't know how you explain the word balagan. It's like the big mess that kids make sometimes that you go, you know, there's suddenly a mess everywhere and you go, how did we get here? It's just a big balagan. He creates this this big mess. Uh, So quite dramatic, flipping over tables, all kinds of things taking place. Um, But in order to understand the impact of, of what's really taking place here, we have to step a few steps back and understand sort of the historical context. What were these commercial activities taking place? What was it that Jesus was interrupting in such a dramatic way? And why was he doing that? Okay? We can take, take those steps back. So, the first thing to say about these commercial activities is that in and of themselves they were not wrong. Okay? In fact, these commercial activities were necessary for the temple worship. So what do we read? We, we read that Jesus drove out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. I just love that little detail. If you're a pigeon seller, hold on to your seat because Jesus is coming for it. Uh, who knows what that moment would have looked like. Uh, there you go. So uh, So the seats of the pigeon sellers. So... Money changers and pigeon sellers. Now, we know from the Gospel of John and other sources that it wouldn't have been just pigeons. There would have been doves, there would have been goats, there would have been sheep, there would have been oxen, all kinds of animals being sold in this space. And what were these two uh, activities that were taking place? So the money changers, uh, in order to understand what they were doing, you have to understand that at this time, Jewish people lived in one of two places. They either lived in the land of Israel or they lived outside the land of Israel in what was known as the Diaspora, okay? So you lived in Rome, you lived in Antioch, you lived in other cities around the Roman Empire, not in the land. But the temple in Jerusalem was still the center point for Jewish people everywhere. And what Jewish people would do is they would come a few times a year to worship in the temple and they would travel from all over the Diaspora to be in the temple. The other thing they would do is pay the temple tax. So Jewish people, at the time of Jesus, all needed to pay what was called a temple tax. But that tax only existed in one currency, so they could regulate how much it was. Now, if you live in Rome, or in Antioch, or some other ancient city, you have a different currency. So what do you do? You bring your currency to Jerusalem and you exchange it for the temple currency so you can give the tax. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm not a finance person, but I think that we can handle. So that's what these money changers were doing. They were offering a service that Jewish people needed in order to fulfill their their duty as part of this this nation. Then we have the pigeon sellers uh, and the other animal sellers. So what why were why were they required? Well, What you would do in the temple is you would offer these sacrifices to God as an expression of your worship and all different kinds of things. You had to offer perfect sacrifices. So when you offered your pigeon or your dove or your goat, etc., it had to be perfect without blemish. Now imagine you live in Rome 2,000 years ago, and you've got a perfect pigeon. And you need to get your perfect pigeon from Rome to Jerusalem, and it has to stay perfect. Okay, so you've got to, I don't know exactly how you would transport a pigeon at this time, but you had to get your perfect pigeon, perfectly perfect, all the way to Jerusalem. So essentially, why did you need these animal uh, dealers in Jerusalem? Jerusalem was so that they could provide the perfect animals and sacrifices there already, and all you had to do was bring your money and pay for them. It's a legitimate thing it's in fact a helpful thing for these people who are coming. Does that make sense? Okay, so these commercial activities are not in and of themselves wrong. They are necessary. So what were the issues with them? I think there's two issues that we know of that were problematic with these uh, marketplace activities. The first is their location. Where were they taking place? In the temple. Okay. But specifically, we have to understand the layout of the temple at the time. Now, has anybody here been to Jerusalem? (coughs) A few people. Okay, so in Jerusalem, there still exists what we call the Temple Mount, okay? It's this this massive plaza that exists where you have the Al-Aqsa Mosque that that stands, the big golden dome that's there now, okay? Now, at the time of Jesus, you had, if you like, the temple and the temple, so you had the temple building itself, okay, with the Holy of Holies and where the sacrifices were offered, where the priests would do their activities, where the, people, where the Jewish people would come in to do their religious activities in the temple. So that was a building with walls around it. And then around that temple building, you had the temple courtyard, okay, which was the temple mount. Now, all of that was called the temple, but within that was the temple. You with me? Okay, so... The, that massive courtyard around, it's the size of a few football fields, so you know, a, a massive, massive courtyard, came to be known as the court of the Gentiles. Okay? why was A Gentile means somebody who's not ethnically Jewish. Why was it called the court of the Gentiles? Because Gentiles could not come any further into the temple. There was a barrier around the temple building, and if you entered as a Gentile across that barrier, that's it. Okay? Immediate death. So this courtyard was called the Court of the Gentiles. Why? Because Gentiles still wanted to pray to the God of Israel. We know from the New Testament and other historical sources that there were people who were not Jews who wanted to come and worship the God of Israel, maybe as one of the many pagan gods that they worshipped, maybe as the one true God. And we read even through the Hebrew Scriptures through the Old Testament of people from the nations who did exactly that. So Gentiles would have come to this courtyard to pray. Now, where do you think it was that the Jews set up their marketplace? In the court of the Gentiles. Okay, So it was in this temple courtyard that these marketplace activities that we're reading about were taking place. Why might that be problematic? The Jews are thinking that the money changers and the pigeon sellers are thinking, the closest I can get to the temple, the better. If you're thinking like a business mind, if people want these things, the closer you are to the place where they need them, the better the business is going to be. So you set up as close as you can to where the, the, the sacrifices take place, but somebody else is trying to pray there. Okay? And it's all together a holy, uh, prayerful space. So the first issue is the location. The second issue is we know from other historical sources that they would have charged significant interest on these things. So when you had to exchange your currency for the temple tax, you would have had to pay significant interest on that. So they weren't doing these things in the most ethical way. Okay, so you're getting a bit more of a picture of what's going on here. We're in this big market space. There's animals everywhere. There's tons of people. It's around the time of Passover, so lots of Jews would have come from all over the Roman Empire to, to, to the temple. It's not just, you know, one little marketplace the size of this room. Massive space. And here comes Jesus. So Mark chapter 11, verse 11, we read that he comes into this space, and he spends a whole day just looking around just sitting, just watching, just observing. He goes out. He comes back the next morning, and he explodes with righteous anger. He he explodes with holy rage. Okay? He creates this this balagan. We read, the moment that strikes me the most in this is when he overturns the table of the money changers. Just picture that moment. Imagine you're a money changer and you've got all of your currencies stacked up in coins on your table, okay? Imagine that's your whole life's work sitting there on that table and this man comes, doesn't ask your permission, he grabs your table full of all your coins, all your life's business and throws it on the ground. Scatters your coins, your life's work into the crowd of people. Can you just picture the drama of that moment? the sense of invasion. What is he doing? How, who, how dare he? Who is this man who's creating such havoc in this space? Who's taken my life and thrown it on the ground? Okay? You're starting to picture the drama of the moment. Overturning the tables, overturning the, the chairs, scattering the animals. Now, the question we have to ask at this point is, why? Why did Jesus do this? What point was Jesus trying to make with this dramatic act? And in order to answer this, we're going to go back to Luke 19, and we're going to read the words that Jesus says. So, Luke 19, verse 45, Jesus entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and then he said this, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now what we actually have here are two quotations of two different texts in the Old Testament. Okay? And any time you get a quotation of a text in the Old Testament, it's always worth going to look at the context and the words around that because often, because the Jewish people had these scriptures so ingrained in their minds, you could say one word and it would remind you of other words which we might not have those associations today. Okay? So what were these two texts that Jesus was referring to? The first one is Isaiah 56, verse 6 and 7 which we're going to turn to quickly. And as you turn to Isaiah 56, I'm just going to blow my nose, excuse me. 56, is that still? Okay. So we read these words, Isaiah 56, verse 6 and 7. This is a prophecy uh, about 700 years before Jesus uh, lived We can see that Jesus is quoting in this text. So keep your finger in Isaiah 56, and then flip a few pages later to the next prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7. Now again, Jeremiah was a prophet, a Jewish prophet in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And he preaches this fiery sermon in the temple In Jeremiah 7, a sermon of judgment, and we read from verse 8 in Jeremiah 7, "...behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations." Has this house, which is called by my name, become den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Okay? Den of robbers. It's the only place where those exact Hebrew words are used anywhere in the Old Testament. And those are the exact words that Jesus is quoting here. Okay? So, before we look in any more detail at those texts, what is it essentially that Jesus is saying in Luke 19? He's saying, it should be this, but instead I see this. It should be Isaiah 56, but instead I see Jeremiah 7. And it's because of that that he reacts in the way he does. Okay. Now, really briefly... What is it that those two texts are speaking about? Because if we can understand that, then we understand what it is that's taking place in this moment. Are you all with me? Okay. I know we're kind of doing some jumping around, but it's uh, that's what Jesus was doing. <laughs> we're gonna jump with him. Okay. So Isaiah 56, verse six and seven. We read this prophecy about people from all nations, all peoples, coming to worship God. It says, The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now this is a vision of a moment when people from all over the world are going to come and love God, and worship God, and know God, and be in covenant with God. And what is Sabbath a symbol of ultimately of trusting God, of living a life dependent on God, not dependent on our own work? Okay, so, 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 so it's this glorious picture of people coming from all over the world to worship God and to be in his presence. And as I was preparing, the words that grabbed me more than anything else were these words in verse seven. What does God do? He says, I will bring them to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Does anybody here want God to make them joyful today? <laughs> Amazing. Amazing promises. And I believe that Jesus walked into the temple with these words heavy on his heart. He, he understood the joy that the Father wanted to bless his children with. He was living in that joy. He understood it. He had received it. And he knew the bliss of the joy that can only come from the Heavenly Father. And he comes into the temple longing, longing to see this joy given to these precious people. And what does he find? Jeremiah 7. What do we read? Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on doing these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now, what is the spiritual reality taking place here? That Jeremiah is identifying and that Jesus is recognizing in the temple. Hearts that have turned away from God towards themselves. People living in their own story with them at the center and them seated on the throne instead of living in God's story where He is seated on the throne. That was what these people had chosen to live in their own story. And we see all these horrible, selfish, sinful acts flowing from that basic posture, self-word. Stealing, murdering, committing adultery, swearing falsely, idolatry. But they went further. They hadn't just turned their hearts away from God towards themselves. Even in this rebellious posture, they still went where? Into the temple. Into God's very space. Into the place of devotion. As if being in that place would give them the blessing. As if being in God's space would give them the joy. But in reality, their hearts were looking in the opposite direction completely. That is the spiritual reality that Jeremiah identified. And that is what Jesus himself saw when he spent that day watching looking around. Does that make sense? Can we see that? So back to Luke 19. What was Jesus doing in Mark 11:11 11, 11, when he sat there? for all those hours, and watched. What what do you picture Jesus doing in the temple in that moment? What I see is a man who's weeping. I see a man, maybe not dramatically wailing, but, but he, he's, he's in grief. He's sitting in the temple in grief. And we actually read in, in Luke nineteen forty one. so just a few verses before, that when Jesus drew near and saw the city, what did he do? He wept. He wept over the city. And He said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Why are they hidden from your eyes? Because your eyes are fixed on yourself. And not on the one whose presence dwells in the temple. not on Jesus himself. So he's recognizing the selfishness that he sees in these people in the commercial area, in the marketplace. And as he sees their selfishness, and as he sees their, the way in which their lives are revolving around themselves, he sees it from the perspective of the joy that he knows the Heavenly Father wants to give them, okay? He is living in the fullness of the Father's joy. He has been filled to overflowing with the joy of doing the Father's will. And he sees these precious, precious people with their eyes fixed on themselves and he just looks at them and says, I I cannot give you the joy. Everything within me wants to see you made joyful in the house of prayer. Everything within me is here to see you made joyful in God's presence. But it can't happen. It, 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 you're, it's like there's a waterfall and you're standing next to it facing the other direction. It's like, just But you, you can't. You can't move the waterfall. <laughs> right? And, and, and so he's sitting there in the temple, and he's look. and, he's looking, and I, I think he's just weeping. His heart breaks for these people that he sees, because they, they, they cannot. Do, 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 you get, do you get that? And I think it's out of that grief that the holy rage comes. It's out of that grief that he becomes righteously angry. And the only thing I could think, and it's, it's a very simplistic illustration, the only, the only way I could begin to relate to that experience was, so our daughter Amalia is almost two years old. Is that <laughs> yeah, I was saying? That's an exaggeration. She's not even 20 months yet, but she's getting there. Okay, so she's 19 months. Now, Anybody who's been a parent of young children has experienced many hours of trying to put their children to sleep, right? Sometimes it goes great. Sometimes it doesn't go so well. And there's sometimes these moments where you're doing everything you can to help your child go to sleep, the, inf- the, the, the baby. And they just dig their heels in and I don't know what it is, but something in them has decided that they are going to resist sleep with their entire being. I am not going to sleep. I don't know why, but that's what they've decided, okay? And Amalia is a particularly strong-willed girl, so it's quite, uh... and sometimes I get angry, Now, sometimes I confess I'm angry because there's something else I really want to do right now, and (laughs) I just need to be, and I'm here anyways. So sometimes, okay, it's a selfish anger, but sometimes there's just this moment where you know if you go to sleep, it'll be so good for you. you. If you go to sleep, it'll be so good for you. You'll rest, you'll be at peace, you'll be rejuvenated. You'll wake up happy. And if you don't go to sleep, you'll just be miserable. <laughs> you'll just be miserable. And there's been moments where I get so frustrated that she won't go to sleep because I just want the best for her. And, and she's just, why? Just, oh, it's, ugh, right? It's, the, it's that kind of anger that's like, oh, come on, just go to sleep. You'll be so happy. But something has, yeah. You get it. It's in the same way, I think, that who, who are the people that provoke our anger so quickly? It's the people we love the most, isn't it? Right? Because we want the best for them. We want the best for them. And when we, do, when we see people we love so dearly doing things that we know are not going to be helpful for them, it breaks our heart, and we become angry with them. Right? Because we want the best for them. Okay? So, so there is Jesus sitting in the temple, and he's weeping. He's got this grief and out of that grief comes this holy rage, this burning passion to see these precious children receive the joy that the father wants to give them and they just cannot receive it because of their selfishness, because their eyes are turned towards themselves. Then I think there's something else really significant to bring out of this moment in Mark eleven eleven, what does Jesus do in this moment of grief when he's experiencing this emotion of, of, of holy anger? He waits. He spends a whole day just, he doesn't come in, see all of this taking place and just explode. Okay? He's not an angry, explosive father that anytime something pisses him off, he goes crazy and beats his children. That's not our God he waits he waits his discipline is perfect his timing is perfect his his anger is always completely saturated in love you with me so he waits he weeps and then he waits and then he walks out and then he comes back Then he explodes, okay? Then he comes and he grabs hold of the money changer's table with all the coins spread out on it and throws it on the ground. He grabs the pigeon seller's seat and he throws it and he drives people out of the temple, okay? So he does not hold back. Our Jesus is not just a gentle, nice friend. Yes, he longs for intimacy with us. Yes, he is our friend, but he is the king. He is the holy one, and he is to be feared. He is to be feared. I want to finish just zooming in on this moment. The money changers moment. Okay? Let's just put ourselves in the shoes of this money changer. He was living in a story where he was at the center. Every decision that he made had himself ultimately in mind. That Gentile who wants to come and use this space to pray is less important than me. My business needs to thrive at his expense. That Jewish person who's traveled weary all the way from across the world to worship in this space and has probably had to pay a lot of money to get here, I'm going to charge him extra interest because I know he needs what I have. I am more important than him. Selfishness. How many of us here today can identify, in some way, with the money-changer? I know I can. How often do we make decisions with ourselves ultimately in mind? How many of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, are living in a story centered around me. Me, me, me. Life is about me. I sit on the throne. Of my life. I build my life for myself. Because life is about me. That's our money changer. And if we're honest, that's us. And there he is on a good business day, sitting at his money-changing table. And he's got his piles of coins. And he's got all this life that he has built for himself piled up on the table. And he's sitting back and he's saying, look at me look at, you know, he, he's doing his business and then after every customer, he takes that moment where he looks down and, you know, if you're ever winning in a game of poker with your chips, you'd look down and you'd go, oh, look at look how high my stacks of chips are. It's that moment where he looks back and he looks down and says, look how well I'm doing for myself. Life is going well for me. Life is about me. Boom! Jesus comes and he Flips over the table and he scatters the coins everywhere and he says it's empty. It's gonna give you nothing. It's gonna give you absolutely nothing. (laughs) That's it. He, He he comes and he and he grabs hold of the empty lives we build for ourselves. Why does he do it? Not because he hates us. Not because he wants to hurt us. Because he loves us. Because he loves us so much. And he knows that the Father can give us infinitely more joy than those coins ever can. That's just simple gospel truth. You can decide what you do with it today. So Jesus scatters the coins on the ground and he looks right into the eyes of that money changer and he says, now you have a choice to make. He says, as you watch your empty life scattered on the ground by this lion of Judah, this, this, this fiery man that's not to be trifled with, what are you going to do? as you're confronted with the emptiness of a selfish life. Are you going to try and scramble around and pick up the coins and just scatter together whatever you can of this life that's just been torn apart? Or are you going to let go? Are you Are going to let go and meet his gaze? And find not one who is trying to kill you not one who's trying to hurt you but to find love are you going to look at the coins and look at your life and try and grab it and hold it together or are you going to look up and see and meet eyes of love eyes of of fire but eyes of love and that's the choice that faces every one of us here today Jesus has come He is here, and he's telling us, if you build your life around yourself, it will never satisfy you, and it will cause me great grief. Jesus weeps over those of us who have not given our lives to him. Jesus weeps. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, Jesus is crying because of you. He's sad. He's he's just weeping because he knows, he knows, he knows the joy that you can receive if you just look up and meet his gaze. I love how the passage ends. We'll finish with this. Luke 19. As the days that immediately followed, Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes, the principal men of the people, were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. I love to think that our money changer was one of those people that money changer had taken his eyes off his coins and his life and had chosen to hang on every word that came from this man. We just need to choose. And the last thing to say is What is the joy that we receive when we repent? Now, what is repentance? Repentance is turning away from my life, my coins, my money-changing table, 180 to look at Jesus, okay? Now, what is the joy that we receive in that moment? What is it? How is it that the Father makes us joyful in the house of prayer? It's not just an emotion. We receive Jesus himself. We receive Jesus himself. He is our joy. And he gave everything on the cross and died the most excruciating death man could ever die so that we could have him as our joy. Amen.